Hi, I'm Jason Soto. And I'm Lisa Leahy. And we're the host of Between the Scares, a podcast that takes a look at every movie that Blumhouse Productions has made. You may not recognize the name, but they have made some of your favorite horror movies like Paranormal Activity, Ouija, and Insidious. Yeah, Jason, but they've also made stupid movies like The Fever and Best Night Ever and Hysterical Blindness. Yeah, those two. But they also did Whiplash, Get Out, and Us. And we're going to cover it all. Hey, did you know that Jason Blum also produced that Gem and the Holograms live-action movie? He did that? Uh-huh. Ugh. Fine. But then you have to watch The Green Inferno. Uh... So listen to Between the Scares on Anchor, Apple, Google, Amazon, or our home location at rabbitholepodcast.com. In no particular order, here are my top five favorite horror novels. And I'm using horror in a general sense. Some of these might technically be thrillers. But if that's the kind of thing that keeps you awake at night, shut up. Number five is The Face by Dean Koontz. It's about a child of a super famous actor whose nickname is The Face because he is so good looking. Uh, The child is kidnapped by a literal agent of chaos. A detective is trying to find the boy before something bad happens because the kidnapper has killed people rather brutally. There's a lot of crazy shit happening in this book, even some minor time travel stuff that'll take way too long to explain here. But it's a very underrated book, and I just want people to check it out. Number four is The Stand by Stephen King. In high school, I read the unabridged full-length copy of this. Now, it took me three months, and I carried it around with me everywhere I went, and I read it when I wasn't doing something else. Like making out with hot babes? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, I I read a lot. Uh, But read it all I did, and it's actually a really damn good novel. Now, you really need to stick with it, and I also recommend the 90s miniseries with Molly Ringwald, Gary Sinise, and the guy who voices Patrick on Spongebob. Number three is Final Girls by Riley Sager. What happens to the final girl after the slasher movie is over? When the killer is dead and she's talked to the police and is finally able to go home? That's the premise of this novel, where you follow one such girl who finds out she's in the unofficial Final Girls Club with other girls who also survived a brutal slasher killer. But when another girl gets in contact with our main girl, things don't appear to be what they are. This is such a great take on the final girl trope, and I love seeing how Sager comes not only shows us the life of the final girl, but the attack before and after, and how it could change someone. Highly recommend it if you love slashers. Now my number two, I'm going with basically anything Edgar Allan Poe wrote. I love his short stories and his poems. I I know, I know, it's very basic, but this leads me to recommend... Uh, the great show on Netflix called The Fall of the House of Usher, which combines every horror story Poe wrote. Well, not every story, but a good number of them. <clears throat> uh, the show does a great job integrating each story into this long, arching story. The acting, the writing, the directing, it is all brilliant. And if you want to hear more, go check out the Spraticast episode about it over at rabbitholepodcast.com. Before I reveal my number one, I should come clean here and reveal that I, myself, am writing a horror novel. 
I've been writing it off and on for about six years or so. Now, the premise of the novel is a slasher using very stereotypical horror tropes, but as a gag, because the novel is sort of meta, in that the characters in the novel are aware that they're in a horror story. And they're just kind of rolling with the punches. And much like any writer, I also have periods of writer's block where for months I don't even write. Now, sometimes I do get imposter syndrome and I think to myself, no one's going to read this, let alone like it. Why am I even doing this? And then I think of a pretty damn good kill scene and all that goes out the window. Anyway, look out for that novel in 2035 when I finally finish writing it. In the Mouth of Madness was released on December 10th, 1994, was budgeted for $8 million and earned back $8.9 million. This only has a 58% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I think that's a shame because, I mean, well, it's on this podcast. Not that this podcast is any high bar or anything, but I like to think the typical movie-going audience, especially into horror, dug this movie. I mean, it's a John Carpenter film, for crying out loud. Yes, John Carpenter directed this, and his 90s work is interesting, to say the least. I mean, we got the James Woods-led film Vampires, Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase, and that is a very bizarre film. And then we got a sequel that no one asked for, Escape from L.A., and then the remake, Village of the Damned. Let's not even talk about his 2000 stuff. Anyway, this film star Sam Neill has John Trent, a freelance insurance investigator, who is tasked to find missing horror writer Sutter Kane, played by Jürgen Prochnow. And yes, I had to study the pronunciation of that to get that right, and God damn it, that was the closest I was going to get. David Warner plays a doctor who is listening to Trent's story of tracking down Kane, and really is just a movie bookend. Bernie Casey, Francis Bay, Wilhelm von Homburg, Charlton Heston, and Hayden Christensen, yes, that Hayden Christensen, show up in bit parts throughout this film. Today on That's the... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I never told you what my number one favorite horror novel was. It's Bunny Club by James and Deborah Howe. I will not be taking questions at this time. Today on That's the Bomb, I welcome my friend and podcast co-host Bear as we tell you why In the Mouth of Madness is a hella rad movie from the 90s. Do you read Sutter Kane? What? Hello, everybody. Welcome to That's the Bombio 90 Hello Rad Movies from the 90s. I'm your host, Jason Soto. Joining me today is not only my good pal, uh, helps me run rabbitholepodcast.com, and is the co-host of a Lovecraftian podcast, which is why they're here. Uh, give it up to Bear. What's up, Bear? How you doing? That's like the nicest you've been to me recently. <laughs> Give me a second. I got a bask in it. Well, I mean, it's true. Fair. Yeah. It's true. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not making it up. Um. So I gotta ask you 
first off, right off the gate, if Sutter Kane was real, would you read Sutter Kane? Yeah, definitely. Seems like, like seems like your kind of books. Yeah, like I would have one hundred percent have been one of the people to lose it because I would have been like, oh yeah, like Lovecraftian and like <laughs> Stephen Kingish. Like yeah, sure. Like I'm all in for that. Okay. Okay. I think I would too. Actually, his books seemed interesting. Um, and like in the movie, um, I've seen this a couple of times, but it was this more recent time. Um, putting you in mind because you asked to be on this episode. You want to talk about this movie yeah. because there is a Lovecraftian connection here. Um, but I never thought of that before because I thought the movie was going for a fictional Stephen King, even though they mentioned Stephen King in the movie. Oh no. Dude, that's super Lovecraft. Well, because if you look at the covers of his books, like the other books, they have like a Stephen King vibe, like the 80s Stephen King novel vibes to them. And I think that's what like they were trying to make people think of. But then like the second layer of it is the Lovecraftian stuff. Well, no. So the... I, they were definitely trying to say Stephen King because Stephen King has his whole universe of loosely connected stories within a similar region. And I think they were trying to do that right. in New Hampshire with Sutton King. But also, they straight up lift Lovecraft quotes oh, and really? use them in the movie. Yeah, oh, okay. like they talk about when at the end <clears throat> she says, when they're like looking into the abyss, mm-hmm. and she says the unlimitable abyss of the unknown, that's from Rat in the Walls. And oh. they lift a bunch of other descriptions, too. Really? And like, okay. There's also just, like, a few... I didn't write them down like Hottam, but there were a few, like, verbatim quotes that were from Lovecraft. Um, mm. Like, I think there was one from Hauntra in the Dark when they were talking about the church. Mm. Okay. I don't remember what it was, but I just remember going, oh, yeah, that's Hauntra in the Dark. <laughs> okay, okay. All right, that's cool. Uh, yeah, see, I, I think the common moviegoer probably would not have picked up on that. Um, like, if you're just a regular geek going to see a horror movie in a theater in 1994, um, yeah, you're just, just going to think Stephen King, because it just has the look and feel of like a Stephen King. But then once the story gets going, then it's like, okay, Stephen King never wrote about like tentacle monsters and the great old ones, and that's one hundred percent Lovecraftian, which does get the the the, the great old ones do get named in the movie. Yeah, and I I think it set me up for Lovecraft more than it did. Like I caught Stephen King as a passing reference, but I think it set me up for Lovecraft because the movie starts with him being, you know, put into a mental facility. Right, right, right. And that's a very Lovecraftian thing to have someone read your work and it be so incomprehensibly horrible that they yeah. lose their minds. So I just immediately was like, oh, well, this dude touched an artifact or read a book or something he wasn't supposed to. And he did. Um, yeah. So th- th- so once I knew had the Lovecraftian mindset in mind this last passing, I then saw all the connections. Like, yeah. like the city Hobbs Grove or whatever it's called. It's supposed Hobbs to be End. Hobbs End, thank you. Uh it's supposed to be Arkham, basically. Yeah. Um uh instead of it being Massachusetts, it's New Hampshire. Um and then there's a there's a church with like a little weird gateway to avoid. Um and then we do see technical monsters. And then the whole the whole plot of the story 
is Sutter Kane, who's this like horror writer, very popular horror writer. Um, anytime anyone reads this newest book that he's writing called In the Mouth of Madness, uh, they go insane. And they get like weird, like their pupils get like oddly shaped and they just go mad. Their eyes are bleeding. Um, and, um, and then they turn eventually into these like weird creatures, like undescribable creatures. Um, we don't see a lot of them in the movie, which is a little unfortunate. We see the, the main girl, uh, Styles. She kind of turns into one a little bit mm -hmm. um, in the movie, but we don't really see, like, at the end of the movie, we get this idea that there's this whole wide, like, epidemic of people just turning into these creatures and, like, killing other people. and But we don't ever see that, and I get kind of disappointed that we didn't. But I think not seeing them is a very Lovecraftian thing. Lovecraft knew the scariest type of horror is the one that you can't see because, like, I don't know, maybe it was scary in the 90s, but I wasn't scared at all watching this. <laughs> and I get that a lot with older horror movies. Like, my mom had me watch The Omen because yeah. it, it scared her shitless when she saw it. Yeah. And my best friend and I watched it, and we were crying laughing within the first five minutes that the child <laughs> is dead. So, you know, I like... I, horror is something that becomes outdated. Like, Dracula isn't scary anymore. Yeah, that's fair. In Lovecraftian horror, I think part of the reason why it's so prevailing through time, why it's remained this kind of cult popularity, is because you don't see the thing that's scary. Mm. Like, people depict Cthulhu as this tentacled monster, but we don't really know what Cthulhu looked like. Lovecraft didn't include illustrations. Okay, you know, so, fair. and in Rats in the Walls, you know, there's description of these horrible things, but then some more horrible things that are left, that are so horrible that they can't be described. Um, so I, I appreciated the movie doing that because the very few times where they show creatures, I was like, yeah, it's a slimy tentacle, dude. Oh, no. <laughs> like Mrs. Pickman, who I'm guessing her name is a reference to Pickman from Lovecraft. You know, she turns into that tentacle monster and it's like, okay, you're, you're tentacles now. That's not really that scary. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, maybe it is just an age gap. I mean, I wasn't scared either, but I can see this freaking some people out. Because, um, you know, say what you will, John Carpenter does know how to direct horror. Um, and I thought. Yeah, he... I like Carpenter. Yeah, I thought he did a good job with this. Um and uh and you know, the whole crux of the story is, you know, Sam Neill's character, John Trent, he gets he, he gets hired to go look for Sutter Kane who went missing. And so he figures out that all of his covers when they are assembled together make out New Hampshire and as they're driving to New Hampshire, him and uh this girl that works at the publishing house named uh, uh, Linda Stiles. And um, they get like teleported to the fictional town. And I thought that scene was kind of cool, actually. I kind of liked that teleporting scene. I, I don't know. I, I thought they did a good job with the teleporting scene to make it feel disorienting. Yeah. Because it looked like they were flying in a car at first. There's this weird old person on a bike that just keeps riding by them. 
Um, it started off, it was dark, and then suddenly it's the middle of the day, and they're in this quiet, like, little too quiet town, which I think that would freak me out. Yeah, no, I, um, I grew up in a small town that kind of, kind of similar to Hobbs End. Mm-hmm. If it was dead silent, there, hell no. <laughs> There's no people. There was hardly any people. Um, the only people they found were these kids who were kind of weird looking. Um, the more the day goes on, the more their faces are like disfigured. Yeah. Um, and, uh, they, uh, some of the, um, adults, the main adult actually is the same guy who played Vigo in, uh, Ghostbusters too. I got excited to see him. Um, He's telling um, Trent that, you know, all the kids, all the kids are being affected first. Um, But what do you think about, you know, at first they're like, oh, we don't know who Sutter Kane is. There's no such guy here. And then suddenly everybody knows who he is. Yeah. Um, I thought the town, the town was creepy. You know, the whole time you're just thinking something's fucked up. Yeah. And then the fact that. Styles, you know, the closer she gets to the cathedral and, you know, Kane himself, the more she starts to lose herself, mm-hmm. which, again, it's like a very Lovecraftian idea. Yeah. Um, now, the movie, like, don't touch on how Sutter Kane tapped into this unless I missed it entirely. Um, we just know that he was writing this book. And somehow he tapped into this power of anyone who reads this book, this novel, is just going to fucking lose their minds. And we know he's kind of controlling the gate a little bit where the the great old ones or the older ones are. Um, And he tells Trent at one point, like, I can only hold him back so far. You have to go take my book to the real world so it can get published. And then... Then it goes to Sutter Kane's a god, where he can, like, control everything. I think it's more the old gods, again, in a very Lovecraftian way, as they do Mm -hmm. often in just Lovecraft stories and Cthulhu mythos. The great old ones are influencing him to write these things. They're telling him, you write this, you write this. Mm -hmm. And because of that power that the great old ones have, the more that people believe in these stories, the more that the great old ones reality becomes the true reality. Until the point that the books kind of collide with the real world and take over as the reality. Okay. Um... Because then a weird thing starts happening in that Trent gets back. He destroys the book. Well, first he tries to leave it behind, and then it shows up at his hotel that he's staying at as he's trying to get back to New York City. And then he burns it. Uh, but then when he gets back to New York City, he discovers a lot of things. First off, he discovers that nobody remembers Styles like, at all. Mm-hmm. And that she doesn't seem to exist. And then that the book was returned months ago. And it's been published, and they're now making a movie of it. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing we discover is that the book is about Trent himself. Yeah, like he's the main character. He ends up being the main character of this. And then everything that we've just seen in the movie happens not only in the book, but in the movie version. Because it ends with him going to the movie. 
Mm-hmm. And then we just see the previous scenes from the movie. So we get this weird meta loop in a way. Um, I don't know what you thought about that. Um, I, I really liked it. I, I think, you know, you spend the whole movie establishing that reality is kind of determined by the majority. If mm-hmm. the majority of people think one thing, if you think differently, regardless of how true it is, then you're, gonna be considered insane because the majority of people have had different experiences yeah. so i think twisting it on its head like that at the very end to have this one man left who really kind of remembers how reality was because even even the people who aren't infected their reality has still been altered in a significant way and that the yeah. book was published and that styles never existed to any of those people so their reality has been altered meaning mm-hmm. that Trent is really the only one with any semblance of what the real world was. So, and I think, you know, it's it's kind of an obvious setup because they he spends the whole movie going like, I know what's reality, I know what's real. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, but we started with you in a, like, psych facility, so clearly not. Yeah, well, and then, like, the, 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 the facility was more like, I look at that as, like, an opposite kind of thing where like, he's actually not the crazy one, but everyone around him is. And so he's in this for his own safety. He, cause at first he didn't want to be put into the asylum. And yeah. then he decided that was the only safe place for him. Yeah. Um, and then was there any significance? Do you think to the crosses that he was putting in his cell and all over him? I mean, I think, well, you had Kane's speech about religion and how, you know, the problem with religion is that people haven't believed enough and that it uses fear. But I think more generally, it's just in reference to that Orthodox church, like that big. The church in the story. Yeah, the church that happened that's in Hobbs End. Hobbs because End. Yeah, yeah. you see, you know, there there is a big focus on flashing religious imagery there, you know, like mm-hmm. it wasn't just oh yeah, she walks into a church, but it was flashing the crosses, and it was flashing the notice above the door, and it was flashing the images of Jesus. So, I think, you know, just pulling it. But I will say, he did some work with that black crown. Because it is hard to write on yourself with crown. <laughs> okay. And he had that shit all over him, and he it was did. like... He did. You gotta... That, that is like the best black crown in existence. I agree, and they only gave him the one, too. He did a lot of work with one crown. One black crown, yeah, he did. That thing had to be a nub by the end. It it did, yeah. Um, Were there any other Lovecraftian stories besides the two I think you just mentioned that this pulled from, or was it just those only two? I mean, I think... I mean, the title's taken from In the Mountains Madness. Okay, yeah. Which I think is obvious and mm-hmm. obviously has the same kind of thing of, oh, I've seen something horrible and now I'm going insane. Yep. Um, it kind of reminded me, is this going to be a weird connection? Okay. It I'm... kind of reminded me of Shadow Over Innsmouth. Mm. Just like the small town with people all kind of in on something. Okay. Um, <clears throat> but... And again, I think there was the Rats in the Walls connection that they make when he's looking in the abyss. Mm-hmm. And Rats in the Walls is my actual favorite Lovecraft story, despite the unfortunate naming of the cat. 
Does not um, pop up in this movie, by the way, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, if they were like, here's my cat, I would have been like, oh, no. I, I don't think John Carpenter in the 90s would have let that slide. So I think we would have been fine. I don't think I don't think anyone in the 90s should have let that slide. No one in Lovecraft's time should have let that slide by. Yeah. No, he should have gotten gotta, jumped for that. You got a um, point. You got a point. But I don't know. Just in general... Lovecraft's work, like, the commonalities between Lovecraft's works of cosmic horror and, like, not really knowing what reality is because there's layers to it that we can't understand. Got it. So you think, like, the, the, the writers and the filmmakers, they all just more like, let's make this a general Lovecraftian story and we'll maybe pick and choose a few things. Like you said, the, 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 the old lady, her name... Is yeah, from a Pikmin. story. Pikmin is from a story, so we'll make that reference. Um, and you know the, the 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 great old ones. That's another reference, but we're not going to be very specific uh, about it, which is kind of strange because Lovecraftian stuff's been in the public domain. At you know, especially in the '90s, it was in public domain, so they easily could have just been like, "Here's an adaptation of a Lovecraft story," but they, they made did. it. They did reference all of Sutter Kane's novels are like, I, I couldn't list them all off the top of my head, but they were all references to Lovecraft works. Like the Hobbs and Horror is the Dunwich Horror. Right, right. Um, like there was one called like Haunter Out of Time, which could be Haunter of the Dark or Shadow Out of Time. I can tell you right now, I got some of his titles here. So okay. there's Breathing Tunnel. Uh, I don't know if there's anything for that one off the top of my uh, head. The Feeding. Um, the Whisperer of the Dark. I know what that one That's is. That's the Whisperer in Darkness. Uh, the Thing in the Basement. The Thing on the Doorstep. Uh, the Haunter Out of Time. That's the one I said is either Haunter of the Dark or Shadow Out of Time. And then the Hobbs End Horror, which you said was done, which... And then after that was supposed to be In the Mouth of Madness. That, that's which, a... In the Mountains of Madness. So, yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of cool, actually, that they did that. Yeah. Um, and like, what, what's funny is like, these do like, I'm looking at the, at the book covers of them. Here, I'll share my screen so you can look as well. Um, I totally could see these has like actual horror novels from the nineties. Cause this yeah. is kind of what horror movie, horror, yeah, horror novels look like in the nineties. Like there were these like kind of cheap paperbacks, you know, yeah. with these really fancy covers, very graphic looking covers. Um, it was revealed that Sutter Kane himself designed the covers in in the movie, mm -hmm. um, so he can hide the little map of uh, uh, new uh, Hobbs End, Hobbs End and stuff. Yeah, in it. Uh, but these look very much like the mass market type of paperback horrors that were really huge in the '90s. They did a really good job with this graphic design. I gotta say, like, you know, John Carpenter knows his shit, and he knew like what you know. What, you want know I me mean? like to make these look like actual horror novels. Yeah, I, I have a lot of my mom's old, you know, horror books from the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And a lot of them are Stephen mm. King, and they're all illustrated like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, in, so in the movie, uh, John Trent um, mm -hmm. starts off as a disbeliever. Um, he reads the novels like the older Sutter Kane novels and he hates them. 
he thinks are just paperback trash, basically. Um, do you think that's why he was more susceptible to being kind of overtaken by In the Mouth of Madness because he didn't believe right away? Well, I, I think it's the opposite, where it took him so long to succumb to it. Even mm-hmm. after he was kind of shown with this like explicit proof that things are wrong and that Sutton King obviously had some weird supernatural abilities after he because you know like he like follows like goes into the church and it's like oh you're here Mm -hmm. you know he still wasn't really willing to accept it you know he's staring into the abyss and he still is kind of processing yeah which for me at this point the hell no (laughs) i'm walking through the tunnel and i'm out of there i'm not gonna just look into this dark abyss that opened yep um, yep, yep. And I think it, you know, it just reinforces the fact and kind of like the sadness. I don't want to say sadness of the ending, but to him, it's probably sad. You know, the fact that he's the last one, he held on for so long. For what, really? You know, in the end, it doesn't matter that he's the only one who knows what the world was like and should have been like. Yeah. You know, because he's one person. And he's probably going to die to one of the mutations. Yep, the world's now overtaken by mutated elder god things. Um, the movie itself. Let's talk about that for a second. The performances. What do you think of the performances in the movie? Like Sam Neill. Uh, I thought he did a wonderful job. Yeah, I loved. I don't know her name, but whoever played Styles. Mm-hmm. Um, the way she moves makes me makes me wonder if she's a dancer. Oh yeah. For, for listeners who don't know, I did dance for years and was gonna go to clown college. So <laughs> I'm decent at spotting when other people are dancers. Okay, okay. And just the way she moves. But I I liked her descent into madness. I thought she played it really well. Yeah, because it was it was somewhat gradual because she was with Trent and she was thinking all this shit was weird, and then they get to Hobbs End and you know, she's like, you know, this is this is kind of weird. All right. Um, there's a painting in the hotel that they go check in that keeps changing. Uh, mm-hmm. Every time but either of them look at it, something changes about it, uh, which I thought was kind of cool. Um, but then over the course of time, yeah, she succumbs to the madness of Sutter Kane. He, he draws her to the church, and he makes her read the book, the In the Mouth of Madness, and uh and then he and then she is now as she says in the movie she's now part of it she read the story so she's now part of it so she can't uh go back to the real world if you will and then ends up Sutter Kane wrote her out because now he's controlling everything yeah that's an interesting character arc I think it was interesting commentary that um she like started to kiss Trent and then when her justification was Sutton's making me do it because it'll sell better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting commentary because I think there, I mean, I don't think there's like been a well-documented issue in a lot of, especially older horror movies of like, I don't know how to phrase this without it sounding odd, but <laughs> of, of over-sexualizing their female characters. Right, like the, like the woman people. always has to make out with the main guy or get or with him or like romance. Like a reanimator. Yeah. There is no reason 
there's no reason that one scene had to happen <laughs> with the head. There's no reason for it. They could have been written out and the movie probably would have been better for it. And that's coming from me who loves Reanimator. Yeah. But yeah. you know, so it's like simultaneously a commentary on that while also perpetuating that. Yeah. Because she still is doing those things and she still was kind of made as this like, you know, like hot. Mm-hmm. Well, and like what was interesting about like that dynamic between her and Trent was like there were moments where I thought like he was hitting on her. Like yeah. kind of the like in the beginning when he gets hired by the publishing house and Charlton Heston's like, I need she she's gonna go with you and he's like, Okay, and he goes to her, I need you know, tonight let's meet up and I'm gonna look over all of his stuff. Yeah. And it sounds like at first he's asking her out like in that coy way, like, Hey, we're gonna have dinner, but we're really researching Kane. And he has her like pinned against the elevator. Yeah. Too. But so then it's like Yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna, I was just agreeing with you. But uh, yeah, and then it ends up it's like, oh no, he really wants to research Kane. He's not actually trying to hit on her. And in that moment where you know it's like uh, she starts kissing him, he's you know anyone any other movie I think the guy would have been into it, but he's like, what are you doing? Why like why are you doing this? Like there's no need for you to do this. And that's when she reveals he Sutter Kane's making me do this to sell books. Um, and yeah, it is kind of an interesting little thing that they put in this movie, um, you know, because it's a horror movie, but you don't have the two leads like shacking up, at least willingly. Yeah. I so. also think, I don't know if this is intentional or not, and I really should have gone back through. I only checked a few of them because I was just scrubbing through, mm-hmm. but they did a lot of like close-ups of people's eyes, like yes. enough, maybe not a lot, a lot to where I noticed and then Sutton Kane at the end says, you know, my favorite color is blue, blue. and then turns the whole world blue. Yeah. Every single close up of a character's eyes, I went that I could find, I went back and checked, were blue. Oh. I don't know if that was on purpose or not. Hmm. That's interesting. I meant to look it up before the show <clears throat> and just forgot to because I noticed it last night. But that has to be intentional. That has to be. It that has makes, to be because there's sense. no way all those people had blue eyes. Yeah. Like, like he changed their eye color after they read the book. That makes sense. I Yeah, okay. I never thought about that till just now. That's pretty cool. I did really like, I don't normally like, oh, I wake up and it's a dream kind of things. But I feel like the one in this movie was done better than The Prince of Darkness mm. was. Mm-hmm. I agree. Because that happens twice, actually. Um, the yeah. one at the beginning when he's still at home reading the novels. Uh, and the cop shows up next to him in his living room, and then on the bus. Yeah, the bus one is the one I was thinking of. That's okay. like, yeah, yeah, so good. Yeah, I I agree. I yeah, I'm with you too. I don't like the whole it was just a dream. But again, this is '94, so we're still kind of at that point. People weren't tired of that trope yet. It does, it would become tired till I think a little bit later. Um, but yeah, by I, the I, time. I started like having an interest in writing in like fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Even before that, I remember it. But having everything just be a dream, or someone yeah, waking up yeah, from yeah, a dream yeah. to start a story, like starting a book with a dream at that point was considered like out of fashion. No, indeed, and boring. It, it, yeah, it 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 would eventually become a tired trope. Also, you have Dallas to thank to that. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, you know, um, I don't know if you've seen that show, but no, I've also I had never seen this movie before I watched it for the podcast. Oh, I thought you've seen it. No. Oh, because you asked to do it. <laughs> yeah, I asked to do it because I knew it was Lovecraft, but I had never oh. seen it. Okay, all right, no, that, that's cool. Well, then what did you think of it then? Okay, we'll just get into that. Your first time. What did you think of the movie overall? I really liked it. Um, I'm kind of hard to please with movies because I have a really short attention span. Mm-hmm. Um, so I did this while working on an art project. But, I mean, it was good. It probably helped that the building I was in I was in like a back room in on the first floor. Mm-hmm. So to get to the main en- exit, I would have to walk through this long hallway and turn and walk through and like the main lobby, which is also kind of long. Mm. Campus safety came in in the middle of the night at like midnight to turn off the light of the room I was in, not knowing there was someone in there. So we scared <laughs> the shit out of each other. <laughs> and then I realized in the middle of watching this movie that campus safety had turned off all the other lights in the building which meant i had to just like sprint through a pitch black hallway to get out of there yikes but it added to the atmosphere because it was like well now i'm kind of freaked the fuck out yeah there you go so there you go listeners go watch this while running through a darkened building (laughs) while locked in a fine arts (laughs) building uh yeah this was my second or third time watching it uh, but my first time was like in the '90s, like kind of when it was like on cable, um, and um, I remember then, you know, thinking it was okay because I didn't understand what was happening. It was yeah. to me, to my 15, 16 year old brain, I didn't really understand what was happening in the movie. Um, and then I watched it again older, and I sort of started picking up on like, oh, okay, it's. A guy, a writer, a Stephen King type writer, because I didn't know who Lovecraft really was at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then now it's like, okay, this is clearly Lovecraft that they're going for. Um, but I, the more I watched it, like you know, each time I watched it, the more I liked it. And this time, I really, I really, really dug it this time because uh, it has a lot of really cool, creepy scenes um, of like just creepy shit happening, like the old lady who has the dude chained to her ankle. Yeah. And he's just like beaten and naked on the floor and he's she's like beating him. Um we got the kids who the more we saw the kids, the more they're like getting disfigured in the face somehow. Um we got that scene where Sutter Kane shows up to him on the next on the bus and he's like, I could control the world. My favorite color is blue, and then suddenly everything's blue. Like that was that was pretty damn cool. Mm-hmm. Um You know, John Carpenter's really good at directing monsters if that makes sense yeah like because he doesn't make the monsters you know what i mean like in the thing for example he didn't make the monsters in the thing but he knows how to tell the people how to use them in the movie Mm -hmm. and he does the same thing here uh it's a little more subtle here than in the thing um but you know when they do show up and when they do come out he he knows how to direct them um and i think i think this is a pretty good 90s carpenter film it's probably his best 90s film uh but that's saying something um what other carpenter have you seen i'm just curious. i've seen i've seen the thing i've seen prince of darkness uh, i've seen halloween oh yeah i've seen one. halloween first one um they live <clears throat> i've seen they live okay i've seen escape from new york escape from new york okay okay 
All right, so you've seen a lot of his good, his, his well-known classics, and that's... Oh, I've know, seen Big Trouble in Little China. And Big Trouble in Little China, yeah, he did do that, yep. Yeah. Okay, so where where would this fall, you know, in Carpenter's work? Like, do you think this is higher-end Carpenter, or do you think higher this end. is... It's definitely higher, okay. It's not my favorite, it's definitely not my favorite Lovecraftian film ever, but I don't... I I like it enough where I I'd consider it one of my favorites maybe. Okay, okay. But it's not you know like like I I like my top spots are taken. Mm. Okay. By that's movies fair. that I think nail the Lovecraft cosmic horror better. So like Color Out of Space twenty nineteen. Yeah. And Defarba from oh fuck I mean I'm gonna get it like super wrong. It's not two thousand five. I want to say two thousand six. Because you had me look it up before. I don't know. Let me look it up. It's 2005 um, or six. I remember. I feel like I remember it's one of those years. Um, no, we're both horribly wrong. It's 2010. Okay. My All other right. guess was going to be 2015. So I was okay. right in the middle. But Might be thinking of something else from 2006. But um, um, like those two are like my peak of Lovecraftian horror. Okay. Especially 2019. 2019, like. Holy shit. Yeah. And color. that, I think, did even seeing the horror well. Because, again, like, this movie, I when you saw the things, it was kind of like, eh, okay, it's like a dude with some, like, nasty prosthetics. Or, like, <laughs> it's some, like, tentacle right, special right. effects. Versus Color Out of Space 2019, where it was like, what the fuck am I looking at? Exactly. Exactly. It was like it was so it, it was like having a stroke where you can't recognize anything. Yeah. Um in terms of Lovecrafty, I can't really compare it to really a whole lot. I've not seen a lot. Um I saw Colored Out of Space because I was on mm-hmm. your show to do that. Uh I saw the the HP Lovecraft Historical Society's version of uh Call of Cthulhu, and that was really damn good. Yeah, that is really good. They did a good job with that. I've not seen any of the follow-ups to that. Uh, even though I did buy the one with you at Gen Con. <laughs> yeah. I haven't watched that one yet. Um, I forget which one I got. I think it's Whisper in the Dark? I think. Maybe. I don't remember. I don't remember. Anyway, um, but in terms of Carpenter's work, I think this is pretty high-end. This is, I think this goes up there with like They Live and um, The Thing. I would... I would, you know, in a t- if I made a top five Carpenter directed film, this would probably be number five. I'm surprised um, that it's so not like it was received so with like lukewarm. Yeah, it just earned its budget back and and just barely. <laughs> um, and I am surprised that it's such a low rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I think it just became a cult film, ironically enough. Yeah. Um, it's one. Of, I think. I think maybe. Maybe it's just too weird for standard horror audiences. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, because it's, you know, and I think Lovecraft, I think that's just true of anything Lovecraftian. I think, like, you have to be into Lovecraft in order to enjoy the work. Because mm-hmm. if you try to show, like, a normal person, even just Call of Cthulhu, they're not going to know what the fuck to make of it. <laughs> I, I feel like that for, like, Reanimator and From Beyond, too. Yeah, I've known people who watched those and like didn't like them at all. Didn't get it, yeah, yeah, and like did just did not understand the like concept behind it. 
Which is yeah. fair. I, I know Lovecraft, not seeing the thing is not for everyone. I and I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's it's perfectly fine. Um, but yeah, I I dig the movie. You like it, and yeah. for your first time watching it, you like it. <laughs> so that's pretty cool. Uh, any last final thoughts about um, Lovecraft and the Mouth of Madness, John Carpenter? Anything not that we really, didn't touch but on? Thanks for having me on. No, uh, seriously, this is a good discussion. I I enjoy talking horror and Lovecraftian with you. Um. So you do have a Lovecraftian podcast that's on an indefinite hiatus, but you do plan on bringing it back. It will come back one day. (laughs) But there are episodes you can check out. RabbitHolePodcast.com called With Strange Eons. You want to just talk just a little bit about it, like what what it's supposed to be about? (laughs) So I look at different visual representations of Lovecraft stories. So like we said before, uh, Color Out of Space from 2019, we looked at. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked at Reanimator. I've looked at a few video games that are based off of Lovecraft's works, and I do a visual analysis of them and talk about how visually they're similar to the written descriptions and how they may differ and how they may use visual media to um, enhance Lovecraft's storytelling and how they may not. Yeah, and it's actually very thought provoking, very entertaining. Um, like I said, I don't know a lot of Lovecraftian and I, I learned some things about it. So, uh, pretty cool show. Go check it out with strange eons, rabbitholepodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, bear, thank you so much for, uh, coming back for your second time. Hopefully you remember this time and, uh, I appreciate you as always. I appreciate you. Thank you. That's the Bomb Yo, 90 hella rad movies from the 90s, is hosted, written, and edited by me, Jason Soto. I can be found on Twitter, at FamousComedian, or you can email me any questions, comments, or concerns to rabbitholepod at gmail.com, spelled R-B-B-T-H-O-L-E-P-O-D. This show is a Rabbit Hole Podcast Productions. You can find this episode and several other great podcasts over at rabbitholepodcasts.com. You can follow Rabbit Hole Podcasts on Twitter at RabbitHP. Also, you can support every Rabbit Hole Podcast on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash rabbitholepods. For three bucks a month, you get early access to episodes and bonus content. Until next time, I'm Jason Soto, and remember, wear sunscreen. Copyright 2024, Rabbit Hole Podcasts, rabbitholepodcasts.com.